Welcome to Talk About Poetry, where a group of working poets get together to talk about poems that please, excite, sometimes annoy, but always engage us one way or the other. I'm Bob Hers, publisher and editor of Nine Mile Magazine and Nine Mile Books, which is sponsor of this podcast. On today's podcast, we'll be speaking with Marvin Bell about the many poems that he's written over really an extended and, and highly renowned career. Uh, the other poets at the table, we've got uh, four more people. I'd like to have them all introduce themselves. Phil? I'm Phil Memmer. I'm the director of the YMCA's Downtown Writer Center in Syracuse, New York, and also associate editor for Tiger Bark Press. Uh, my most recent book of poems is The Storehouses of the Snow, Psalms, Parables, and Dreams. And I'm Steve Cusisto. I teach at Syracuse University. I am uh, the author of uh, two books of poems from Copper Canyon Press, only Bread, Only Light, and most recently, Letters to Borges. My name is Jasmine Bailey. I am the author of a chapbook, Sleep and What Precedes It, which won the 2009 Longleaf Press Chapbook Award, and also a full-length collection, Alexandria, which won the uh, Central New York Book Award in 2014. And I'm Georgia Popoff. I'm the workshops coordinator at the Downtown Writers Center in Syracuse, senior editor of Comstock Review, and my third collection of poetry is called Psalter, the Agnostic's Book of Common Curiosities, which just came out in June from Tiger Bark Press. Marvin Bell is a, uh, let me just talk about Marvin for a second. Marvin is a well-known poet and a teacher, and full disclosure-wise, he was a teacher of mine also when I was at Iowa. He's published more than 20 books of poetry. He's won numerous awards, including the Lamont Prize for his first book, a Guggenheim, a National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship, and a Fulbright. Uh, he taught, at, um, as I mentioned, at the Iowa Writers' Workshop. He's the first poet laureate for the state of Iowa, good for, good for Iowa, good for the state. Uh, and his former students are, are well-known poets, uh, Rita Dove, Norman Duby, Albert Goldborth, uh, Jory Graham, Dennis Johnson. It's a long list, and it goes on and on. Uh, we want to start up focusing on a couple of poems of Marvin's and then ask him some questions and let him respond and see where we go from there. Um, I'm going to ask Steve Casisto to read uh, uh, the, two, the two poems we have, are these green going to yellow, and uh, a second poem, I Didn't Sleep. Steve? These green going to yellow. This year I'm raising the emotional ante putting my face in the leaves to be stepped on, seeing myself among them, that is, that is, likening leaf vein to artery, leaf to flesh, the passage of a leaf in autumn to the passage of autumn, branch tip and winter spaces to possibilities, and possibility to God. Even on East 61st Street in the blousy city of New York, Someone has planted a ginkgo because it has leaves like fans, like hands, hand leaves, and sex. Those lovely Chinese hands on the sidewalks, so far from delicacy or even perhaps another gender of ginkgo, do we see them? No one ever treated us so gently as these green going to yellow hands, fanned out where we walk. No one ever fell down so quietly and lay where we would look when we were tired or embarrassed or so bowed down by humanity that we had to watch out lest our shoes stumble 
and looked down, not to look up, until something looked like parts of people where we were walking. We have no experience to make us see the ginkgo or any other tree, and in our admiration for whatever grows tall and outlives us, we look away or look at the middles of things, which would not be our way if we truly thought we were gods. I find that just an extraordinary poem, Marvin. I mean, it truly is. Um, can you talk about that poem a little bit? I mean, it's, there was something going on uh, in your poetry at a particular point that changed from an earlier kind of poetry that you wrote to something that was, uh, I don't know how else to describe it, something this lush uh, or this touching. Uh, did you feel that, or did you just feel like you were writing more poems from the heart? Well, uh, I think the real answer is that I started from nowhere. I mean, most people begin writing poetry with a pretty good sense of contemporary poetry, modern poetry, old poetry. Uh, I came from a town where people didn't go to college, and poetry was not part of our experience. Art in general was not part of our experience. It was a fine place to grow up, but art wasn't a part of it. And so when I started, I really knew nothing. Um, it was the beats. It was Alan Ginsberg and Kerouac and Ginsberg and Corso and those people who uh, convinced me, well, not convinced me, but showed me that poetry might be something besides what I thought it was. And uh, at the time, I was a graduate journalism student in Syracuse at the, at the university there. I stayed one semester. But I began to skip classes with a couple of friends and and uh, go to a cheap Italian restaurant and read deep poetry to one another and so forth. So over the years, I, I had to figure out what on earth poetry was and what on earth I might write. Um, the first poems I wrote were just wordplay and not very well done. And the next poems I wrote had a lot of imagery in it, but it wasn't very good imagery. And eventually I ended up in Iowa City with people who knew a lot more about it. Before that, I had I had fallen in with a group in Chicago that was led by the poet John Logan. And of course, when you fall in with other people, especially people about your age who, who know more than you do, you learn a lot quickly. So when I got to Iowa City, I was still writing poetry. It was fairly obscure. I remember Denise Leverdov coming to a workshop, and there was a poem of mine on the worksheet. And she said, well, now there's a line in this poem that says it's obscure as hell. And that's the way I feel about it. And my fellow poets, you know, rose to defend me, but she was right. And I remember waking up one day and thinking, wait a minute, I got this all wrong. And I, I guess maybe I should apologize for what would come later, because I probably came to write poems that other people think are somewhat obscure, though I don't, I wouldn't agree with that. But nonetheless, I started over. I just kind of started over, started writing poems that were, uh, oh, they were skinny, um, didn't have to go very far in the line, and uh, they were mostly rhetorical wit. Uh, with some imagery. And so I just had to move by very slow steps to poems that might be a little bigger, bigger than, as it were, might embody more of me. Does that make sense? Uh, you you, followed, you found more of yourself in the lines and in the poetry, right? The heart opened up? I guess so. Yeah, I got, you know, one of the great secrets in life is that if you do anything long enough, you get better at it. <laughs> <laughs> well, one hopes that's true, but, but maybe it's not always. <laughs> and this book was published in 1981. My very first book was, I think, in 66. And my first book by a big publisher was in 69. So what's that, about 22 years later? 
uh, a lot had gone by. I, after the first book, that Lamont book called The Probable Volume of Dreams, I wrote a very intense sequence, a book that was uh, a sequence of poems called The Escape Into You. Mm-hmm. They were all uh, fairly short poems, and they were very intense. Uh, and then there was a book called Residue of Song, and I called it that because I felt it was anti-poetic. Thinking of Nicanel Para, perhaps, but mm-hmm. in any case, it seemed as if it uh, was in some fashion anti-poetic. And after that came a pretty book, a beautiful book called Stars We See, Stars Who Do Not See. And I say beautiful not because I'm claiming it is, but because that's the way it was taken. You know, it was read as if it was a book of pretty poems. And so uh, it had to go on from there. In other words, I had gotten myself to the point where I was writing something I thought maybe was okay. Um, and then I had to try to get bigger, stranger, different, whatever it was. I know that's not a great answer, but you know, the truth is I, I tend not to try to remember. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I want to, this is Steve here. I, I, I want to uh, say that uh, Syracuse University has a uh, Manhattan uh, center. It's a double townhouse on East 61st Street in, uh, in New York City. And uh, faculty and uh, and staff can go there and host events or, you know, there's a gallery there that we can have classes. Uh, or if you're in New York for business, you can actually stay there. There are guest rooms. And so I've gone in and out of this house on East 61st Street uh, really probably about four dozen times over the last uh, five years. And this poem is always in my head as I walk toward the park uh, from the uh, NYU Lubin House. And, uh, you know, and it's funny, I, you know, you know me, Marvin, I, I travel everywhere with a seeing eye dog. And, uh, you know, you walk around New York, and there is something about being in the city where you feel both the isolated and individualized quality of your own life, and then the great surround of everyone else. And there's a something just rather remarkable that happens there, that it's a kind of uh, heightened sense of both self-awareness and, for me, um, a kind of sweet vulnerability. Uh, you know, something James Wright-esque happens to me in New York. I feel like I could step out of my body and blossom suddenly. Um, and uh, that's just the subjective me. But I, I love the fact that in this poem, you say, this year I'm raising the emotional ante. No one has ever said something that declarative and rich and uh, really p- powerful at the opening of a poem. Putting my face in the leaves to be stepped on, seeing myself among them. Uh, that's really, in some respects, um, I, I feel a hint of of, uh, of James Wright there. Do you uh, do you think have ever thought about that? Uh, I think you're very smart about that because I'm turning the pages of this book as you're talking and I see that just before it, well, the poem right before it is called The Last Thing I Say and it runs into the first line which says to a 13-year-old sleeping. But now I go back another page. Here's a poem called The Canal at Rye, which is where Henry James lived. And the first line is, don't let them tell you. The next line is, women or the men, they knew me, you knew me. And then there's, uh, there's some other poems like that that have somewhat... Uh, what would you call them? Challenging? First lines. And I do think James Wright did that. But they're, 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 uh, they're shrewd lines, they're demanding lines, but they're also invitational. 
uh, you know, that they let the they let the reader in by saying um, this is uh, a rare and uh, rich and probative place you're about to enter. That's a nice way to put it. I think I think it also raises the aesthetic ante, doesn't mm. it? Yeah. I mean, if you're going to begin a poem by saying this year I'm raising the the emotional ante, putting my face in the leaves to be stepped on, right? You've you've now raised your your emotional as well as your aesthetic level to such an extent that the rest of the poem really has to has to run at about that level or that level of intensity. I think this does. It's extraordinary. But yeah, I think this it, does. It also says I'm going to dare to feel richly. Yeah. Yeah. There's a swirl in the sounds of this poem that I love. You know, the way it keeps coming back on the hands. And uh, and there's something that, when I was a young poet, one of my favorite poems as a teenager was E.E. Uh, e. Coming Somewhere I Have Never Traveled. Mm. And that nobody, not even the rain, has such small hands. And this brings me back to remembering how much I love that poem. And giving me the opportunity to love this one, Marvin. And I met you probably for the first time just a couple years after I discovered that poem. And then meeting you was like, you were the first really famous poet I met. <laughs> <laughs> and I was really impressed that you could be a real poet mm-hmm. in life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so then getting to see you again this when you were here, uh, when was it, Phil? 14? Late 14? Yeah, that sounds about last fall. fall. It was just like, oh, gosh, I've grown up, and now I get to sit with Marvin and really talk. But this poem just came, swirls like the wind. It's just beautiful. Uh, Thank you. I, uh, you know, it could be, I've thought about this, I must say. uh, I, I think I... I'm not quite sure how to say this. It may sound very self-critical. Uh, I've thought about, you know, all the kinds of books I've written and where I am now writing these dead man poems and others like it. Um, and one could accuse me, I guess, of, of, uh, of, of not writing out of those emotions anymore. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, of writing something that, well, if I'm lucky, it's visionary. If I'm lucky, it is in fact emotional. Dorothy swears those dead man poems are. But... I can see how someone would say, "Hey, you know, you're not writing poems about walking down the street anymore. They're not, they're not in the first person for one thing, uh, and they're um, crazy, metaphorical, generalized. You know, all this stuff about the posthumous president and so forth. Uh, it's a very different thing. And I know that, you know, when I give a poetry reading, I'm I'm aware that I had better read some of the earlier poems." Well, I would say that uh, what it, is it? Is it Heraclitus? You know that you can't enter the same river twice. <laughs> That's uh, right. The imagination, uh, the imagination flows and moves, and uh, so it makes a great deal of sense to me, as a, as a poet and reader, that that the dead man poems are concerned with um, your lifetime of engagement with philosophy, among other things. And that's true. And so um, I see no, you know, as a, as a reader and an appreciator of poetry, I see no um, advantage over uh, walking down the street and having a balladic experience, uh, you know, with the leaves in autumn and, uh, and really the tougher calling that is philosophy in the life of the mind. I think they're both equally uh, valid and important. 
That was a little speech I just gave, wasn't it? <laughs> You're wanting that was to good. <laughs> where, 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 where are the leaves of yesteryear? <laughs> they're in my, they're in my garage. I was afraid of that. <laughs> when I started writing, you know, free verse was still uh, interesting, automatically interesting, in contradistinction to the formalist verse of the fifties, and so. I can remember being in the writer's workshop at the University of Iowa as a graduate student bum, and my uh, my teacher and later my friend and colleague Donald Justice would look at a poem of mine on the worksheet, and he would raise one eyebrow and say, now this appears to have been written in free verse. <laughs> and and I and I would say, uh, no, no, uh, it's written in uh, sprung essentials with variant lines. <laughs> Beautiful, beautiful. <laughs> you had to be able to talk the language of the matricians to be taken seriously then. But of course, over time, free verse has become the style of the age. And as, as you know, I don't, I don't think of free verse as a form or an absence of meter. I think of it as a, as a method for finding new forms. The poetry of uh, the lines in these green, green, yellow are, are elastic. Uh, they're not terribly short, but they're not long. And uh, it's an elastic free verse. Um, as time would go on, I would, you know, in the Dead Man poems, I would give up and jam and jam and. <laughs> but in the meantime, I would experiment with very skinny poems and very long line poems and elastic lines and the rest of it. Marvin, do you think of yourself as writing a book, or as writing poems that later become a book? I just write poems. Uh, I'm aware if I have a form going that you know they probably should go between one set of covers. Uh, I don't. I don't set out to write a book. Although you know, as soon as I say something, I realize there are always exceptions, even to, in my life. And the escape in the U is clearly a book. On the other hand, I just kept writing those poems and writing those poems. So, you know, I covered love, marriage, divorce, sex, and politics, and a certain amount of what I thought was vision, uh, and that made the book. But could I have gone on? Sure. Gosh. <laughs> And I wrote. I also wrote a series of poems that I thought would be a book, but there weren't. There wasn't enough. My father was never good from Ukraine. I started out to write poems to and about him. Uh, I think the series ended up maybe with thirteen or fifteen poems, something like that. A series called "You Would Know" that's in the book Residue of Song. And I realized that I just couldn't go any further with it because, for one thing, he didn't talk about the old country. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, in those days, they wanted their kid children to assimilate. That's right. That's right. Uh, uh, I, I have a couple questions. Please, Jessica. Um, my first question is, why did you point out that the last word is neither capitalized nor possessive? Well, you know, Ezra Pound didn't want us to use homophones, <laughs> one word sounding like another. Uh-huh. And this is kind of one of those cases where um, people might think it was more of a religious line than it is, you know, would not be our way if we truly thought we were gods. Oh, okay. And, oh, so you were clarifying for our listeners. Say that again? Were you clarifying for our listeners? Oh, when I pointed it out? Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. That's all I was doing. I would do okay. that if I was reading the poem, too. My other question is if you could comment on the title. I think the title is probably one of the more um, unusual or surprising moments in the poem. And, of course, it is taken verbatim out of a line in the poem, which is part of a sentence. Mm-hmm. Um, but mm-hmm. since hands is eliminated from the phrase, it becomes sort of a mysterious and evocative uh, standalone as a title. So could you comment mm-hmm. on how you decided on that? 
Uh, I think at the time it signaled to me getting older. That's one thing. Uh, green going to yellow, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, also, um, you know, I always am looking for electricity in the language, uh, even at the expense of reader uh, of having an audience. <laughs> I, I just I I have to excite myself or surprise myself when I'm writing. If it doesn't happen, I just get up and walk away. Um, and so these green going to yellow, it's an you know it's an unusual uh, linking. It has all those hyphens and all of that. I think probably I, I, you know I'm guessing of course it's a good question, but I have to guess at the answer. And looking at the poem, I'm looking for that line. Here it is. No one ever treated us so gently as these. Well, it's time for a description of what these is. And I just don't want to say leaves again, right? And I've already said they look like hands, which they do, of course, ginkgo leaves. And so here we go. Green going to yellow because after all, they fell on the street. And that means, that means they're aging. They're turning yellow. Going to die. You know, All of that's probably part of it. The most interesting thing about that title is that it becomes the cover of the book. It's, I don't mean it's the title of the book, although it is, but uh, I got a present wrapped in some sort of green going to yellow paper, tissue paper. And I liked it so much. I said to Harry Ford, who was the designer as well as the editor at Athenaeum, why don't you use this? I sent a piece of it to him. I said, why don't you use this for the cover? I never expected him to do it, but he did. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a hard thing to pull off. It's called a split fountain where you have to have two color inks mixing together, and in this case, very gradually, so that in the first edition, that cover does, in fact, gradually change from green to yellow. But in the second edition, the, uh, it's a much more abrupt dem- demarcation. Is that an answer to your question, by the way? Yeah, yeah. I think just um, the strain, I, I guess I take out from that that the strangeness of the, of the dislocated phrase was pleasing to you. Right. Yeah, I like titles that come out of the poem. I, uh, do you? I rather uh, not titles that summarize anything, but they come out of the poem, and then in retrospect, they seem to carry the poetics of the poem. They seem to carry the the whole sense of the poem rather than any particular phrase or line. Uh, I've tried to do that with all my books. You know, residue of song. What's that? Stars we see, stars we do not see. These green go into yellow. Um, Drawn by stones, by earth, by things that have been in the fire, which is really a poem about pottery. Uh, and I remember when Harry Ford, um, I said to Harry Ford, is that, is that okay? He was my editor. I said, is that okay? Drawn by stones, by earth, by things that have been in the fire. Is that okay? Is a title. And he said, uh, yeah, that's okay. Nobody will remember it. <laughs> <laughs> that's what you call a great editor. <laughs> Encouraging all the way. <laughs> Well, the first book I published with him, I titled The Mummies of Guanajuato. But when I met him for the first time, uh, I asked him if the title was okay, and he said, uh, uh, sure, The Mummies of Guanajuato. And so I changed it. <laughs> right, right, of course. Yeah, <laughs> Marvin, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about uh, about publishing and whether, it's, whether it feels different to you now in 2015 than it than it did back in the 60s or 70s or 80s. You know, you've had a long career, and publishing has changed so much over these several decades. Oh, boy, has it ever. Uh, It's a new world. And, uh, you know, I have no website, no Twitter account, um, no Facebook page, none of that. But if I were a young poet, I think I'd have to, because that's how people find out about things now. The distribution of poetry books completely changed, and I've heard... Uh, about it from someone who has access to a database. 
that tells you how many books uh, this or that Pulitzer winner sold and so forth. And the the uh, numbers are uh, depressing. Uh, I mean, they're just astonishing. Uh, and uh, bookstores don't carry the books and so forth and so on. Of course, things are going digital and online. Um, and we can't change that. I mean, every age develops new survival techniques. So we can't change that. When I started writing, the first book of mine was a limited edition, 270 copies. The publisher, Stonewall Press, who did it, said, well, he was raising it from 220 to 270. They used to publish only 220. He said, that's all the readers there are. <laughs> <laughs> and I used to say, you can sell more books, but you can't get more readers because most of the books end up under dormitory beds, you know, uh, under the floor. You know, you, people don't actually read the books. Um and so uh, it's, a, it's a specialized audience, but what's happened is I think the specialized audience has become even smaller. Uh, there's a kind of democratization of poetry, but it's not poetry of a great ambition uh, or for poetry or for language. And that's okay. I mean, there are a lot of branches on the tree of poetry, and we'd be, we'd be poor if we lopped off any of them. You know, there's, there's, It's okay. There are all kinds of poems, and they're all valid. Uh, but the... The audience for, you know, if Wallace Stevens had a book today, he he couldn't get it published. He, he would just be too strange. He couldn't get it published unless he had a connection, you know. He couldn't get it published. He'd have no readers. I, 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 that's how much it's changed, I think. It is tougher. I think, you know, so much of publishing these days is contest-related uh, or competition-related in one way or another. And that does, at least in my experience, I think I've, I've watched that lead to a certain kind of book. Um, That's right. Becoming yeah. popular. It's, yeah, I hate that system, but I don't know what the answer is because the the number of uh, books out there. I, Dorothy and I were driving across the country as we do every year from Iowa to Port Townsend, Washington, to be here in the summer. And uh, you know, sometimes we try to think of all the songs that have the word "moon" in them and <laughs> things like that. But we started talking. Uh, something had come up about the number of manuscripts out there, hoping for a publisher. And so I started counting up the. MFA programs that I could think up, I could remember just in my head. You know, it wasn't all of them by any means. And then I figured how many graduates there'd be on average per year. And I realized that that was a huge number of first books. And of course, they weren't the only people submitting books to publishers. How about the people who had published, who had graduated the year before, and two years, and three years, and four years before? So it's 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 brutal. Um, you know, when I published that limited edition book, uh, it's called Things We Dreamt We Died For. It got reviewed in most of those big quarterlies of the time yeah. because there weren't that many of us. And okay. now, you know, I have Vertigo. I mean, my books, my, uh, let's see, I think uh, Nightworks was a kind of selected, came out in 2000. I don't think it got a single review. You know, I'm not the only person who has experienced that. Well, and not only that, um, you know, Bob and I have been talking lately about this, that, that it's uh, really in, in some regards, I mean, if you use the word crisis, you know, you always have to think about the Cuban Missile Crisis. I mean, there are real <laughs> crises and then there are um, things that may not really deserve the word. But there is a crisis in poetry reviewing in the United States. Uh, oh. Great books are, you know, appear. Uh, your uh, Selected came out. Sam Hamill recently published a wonderful uh, Selected Collected Poems. There are good books coming out that just simply get no reviews. And we know this. I mean, we talk about it amongst ourselves as, as uh, literary people. Um, but, uh, you know, 
getting uh, poetry reviewing uh, back into, you know, the mainstream uh, really is something that I think has to happen. And I'm not, I'm not sure myself how to make that happen. But uh, there are no reviews of poetry books anymore in the New York Times that I know of. I mean, you know, one a year. I don't know. Once in a while in the uh, daily pages, there'll be a big review by the fellow whose name I've blocked on right now. But it's usually of a book, uh, forgive me, that I know that doesn't seem to me uh, uh, quite worthy of it. <laughs> yeah, no, I, 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 I think there's some truth to that. And, uh, and the smaller quarterlies uh, uh, increasingly don't publish poetry reviews. Um, no, no. Very few of them, yeah. very few of them. Um, and they're usually a paragraph long. That's true, yeah. We we could use a few really intelligent readers who are on the side of the poet, on the side of the books that they write about, uh, and who would get published in you know places that get noticed, but I wouldn't hold my breath. Um, this might be a good place to pause also, and to note that there was at least one review of uh, Nightworks uh, in the North Stone Review, uh, a, a reviewer named James Naden, who said oh my that, goodness! Yeah, he said Nightworks places Bell in the more comprehensive context of poetic tradition, while the father poems and the poems otherwise exhuming the past, as it were, illustrate the incantatory ghosts in Bell's oeuvre. There is also acknowledgments to his prolific forebears, such as William Stafford and, of course, Emily Dickinson. Marvin, that's not a bad company to be located in. Uh, uh, yeah, that's a nice thing for someone to say. Yeah. Yeah, there, yeah, there used to be reviews years ago. Uh. <laughs> we'll end this first part of the interview here. Um, I'm Bob Hers. I'm publisher and editor of Nine Mile Magazine and Nine Mile Books, which is sponsor of this podcast. This is part one of a series of extended interviews with Marvin Bell. Uh, look for part two on our podcast website. Thank you very much. We're at the end of this podcast, and I wanted to invite everybody here at the at the table to talk about something that's of significance or importance or just interest to them that they'd like to share with other listeners of the podcast and, frankly, with everybody else here at the table. Georgia? Well, I'm reading, I, I just reread an absolutely fabulous uh, book by one of our friends at the Downtown Writers' Center, Lena Bertone, called Behind This Mirror. And what struck me is not only are... It's flash fiction, but it's very poetic. Her language is just extraordinary, and she's working in these short fiction pieces, sometimes very flash fiction pieces, and using the construct of the modern fairy tale. But it's also very much a, a feminist statement and uh, looking a lot at issues of body image and self self-awareness, um, sometimes self-loathing that I think is common in, in the woman's experience. Uh, but I think that they're also charming, witty, uh, confusing, delightful. And I just, it's one of those, we were talking with Marvin Bell about the aspect of, you know, there's so, so it's so hard to find an audience in publishing now because there's not a lot of mechanism to get it out into the world. And uh, behind this mirror, by Lena Bertone, is a book I really want people to know exists. Uh, so I've lately been reading poems by Stephen Dunn, a really fine American poet. He has a new collection out called Lines of Defense. Uh, it's a collection of, of uh, poems. And this poem is called A Coldness. 
I don't know if it's a coldness or just how the body, overloaded, tends to shut down. But as my brother neared death, I felt nothing that resembled grief. Our unfinished business finished long ago, our love for each other spoken and real. There wasn't much more to say but goodbye, and one morning we said it, a small moment, and one of us cried. From then on, he was delusional, the cancer making him stupid, insistently so, and lost. I wanted him to die, and I wished his wife would say, a shame instead of God's will, or if God had such a will, shame on him. Days later, at the viewing, again, I wanted to feel something, but for whom? That powdered stranger lying there, that nobody I knew? I was far away, parsing grief, turning it over in my mind. He was simply gone, a dead thing, anybody's sack of bones. Only when his son spoke, measuring with precise, slow-to-arrive language the father he had lost, did something in me move. There was my brother restored, abstracted, made of words now. So I, uh, I love that poem. I think it uh, captures something of the a beautiful, sublime, and uh, impossible-to-explain quality of, of language uh, set against the steepness of what it is to live, uh, to live and endure. I've been reading Middlemarch by George Eliot, which was published in 1871, I think, or 1873, but it's set in um, 1831 to 32. So she is looking back 40 years on a time when she would have actually been about 12 to 13 years old. As I've been reading it, I've been thinking, um, you know, was she like this protagonist, Dorothea Brooke? And I think in many ways she was. Um, when you read about George Eliot, she was raised uh, to be uh, extremely puritanically religious. Um, at the time, they called that Methodist. And uh, her, her, one of her many protagonists book is about 850, 900 pages begins extremely orthodox and she becomes much more, um, free reckoning in her religious orientation. But the book has a very, um, a very humane project in terms of describing people from, many different walks of life. And although it begins with a woman who is part of the gentry, it quickly veers away towards people who are uh, craftsmen and uh, small-time politicians and even vagrants. Um, and so it's extraordinary to read a book of so much wit and manners that is really about the proletariat um, and it's it's beautiful and fascinating, and I think uh, it gets avoided by a lot of people because it's so long, but I encourage people to read it. So at Tiger Bark Press, we just uh, published a really tremendous and important collection uh, by a poet who immigrated to the United States, Israel Emiot, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, writing in Yiddish. He spent time in a Russian gulag. Um, he had barely escaped World War II to get to America. Um, and this is, uh, it's called As Long As We Are Not Alone, New and Selected Poems. Um, and it's a career-spanning retrospective of Emmy Ott's work, and uh, some, some of which has been published in America, but not much, and in, you know, in small editions. Uh, it's a a bilingual translation, um, which I did the design work for, which was quite an adventure. Uh, type, yeah. Typesetting Yiddish is not <laughs> not easy at all. Um, but uh, we're really proud of the way the book came out, and we hope it'll get some attention to the career of a uh, poet who lived in Rochester, so in our, our neighborhood here in upstate New York, uh, for the last couple decades of his life and did a lot of amazing work. I've been reading an older book uh, by a poet that a lot of us know, Larry Levis, and I have to say, I'm so stunned by reading it. It's like discovering an old friend with incredible richness in almost every single one of his lines. And just to give a feeling for it, this is the book, this is from his last book, actually a posthumous book called Elegy. And here's a poem called Elegy with a Chimney Sweep Falling Inside It. And just to read the first few lines to give a feeling for how extraordinary a book this is. Those 26 letters filling the blackboard Composed the dark, composed the illiterate summer sky, and its stars as they appear one by one above the schoolyard. I'm completely knocked out by writing like that. I encourage everybody to share with me the joy of rediscovering or of discovering Larry Levis through this incredible book, Elegy. This is the Talk About Poetry podcast, sponsored by Nine Mile Magazine and Nine Mile Books. We hope you've enjoyed this production. Our music is by Bob Perry, an Emmy Award-winning musician who lives and works in Syracuse, New York. Production is by Patrick McDougall at the World Harmony Studios. Thanks to all.